You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, uh, my name is Matt Lingo. I'm the worship uh, pastor here, and I get the pleasure and the, uh, uh, the honor of sharing with you guys today. So would you guys actually just uh, help me start off by just bowing your heads in prayer, and let's begin our time by just going to our Father. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together, to be able to come into this uh, awesome place uh, where we've got tools and, and singers and, and guitars and rooms, um, all meant to uh, glorify you um, through each element, God. And so I pray that um, as even as things are going on, as we're having this service uh, around this church, that we would just continue to glorify you, that you would be in this place as we come um, and we go to your word and we, we, we hopefully remember some of it. Uh, this next week, but that we would apply it to our lives and that it would begin to change us, that we would continue to be um, more and more like you. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, and God's people said, amen. All right. So for the last several months, we've been in the book of Luke ever since we closed uh, or actually started it in uh, Christmas season there with Luke 2 telling uh, the story of Jesus' birth, and we continued on uh, through Luke here. I don't know about you guys, but I have really just been enjoying it. Luke, remember, is a physician by trade, so he's one of these guys that just really has an attention to detail, and he's actually um, uh, interviewed a lot of eyewitnesses, so we've got a lot of detail and just really a very um, detailed gospel here. Um, I've, I've, I've definitely uh, been enjoying it, and today we're going to be hitting Luke chapter 17. That's what I'm going to be talking about with you, and I'm going to unpack that chapter in a couple different sections, and I'm going to read it aloud to you. And it says, um, actually, as I was doing some research about the Gospel of Luke, it was, it was uh, actually written to be read aloud um, at a gathering of, uh, of Jesus' followers there that were uh, partaking in the Lord's Supper. So we're going to kind of do that today, and we're going to unpack this question that I have at the top of your outline there, and that is this, are you the one? Are you the one? No, this isn't a reference to The Matrix or a reality dating show or lyrics from a bad Backstreet Boy ballad. This is, in fact, my title sermon, title of my sermon today. So hopefully this can make sense, right? It'll make sense as we go along, I promise. So I'm going to break it up into these three different chunks. And the first chunk that we're going to read from is Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. So if you've got your Bibles, take those out. If you've got your phone, take that out. If you've got, you know, it on your watch or your wearable Uh, You know, you can do that with your Apple Watch. I've got my Bible up here on my phone. So if you're going to be staring at your watch trying to get me to speed things along, I'm just going to be thinking you're looking at your Bible. I'm going to trust that you have the best of intentions. But um, are you guys there to it? Here we go. One through ten. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, 
Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, you are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, as I read this passage, I don't know about you guys. Actually, when I read a lot of passages, I feel like I really can always relate with the disciples. They kind of give me this sense of, okay, I can relate with these guys. You know, in the chapter here, uh, Jesus starts off giving us a pretty grave warning, right? Uh, and you got to remember, four of these guys, four of these disciples are fishermen. So they would know just how bad it would be to put a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea. That's a pretty vivid picture for them. And the picture is, is that we shouldn't be causing these little ones, as it says, really is referring to new believers, to stumble. And so they're probably, you know, they're, they're nodding their heads along, and, uh, and they're agreeing. And then he says, you know, if, if, if people um, uh, sin against you, be sure to rebuke them. And the Pharisee in them, the Pharisee kind of in all of us probably says, okay, I, you know, I can, I can rebuke them. That makes sense. I'll do that. But then it says, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. And that's the last straw for the disciples. They're like, you know, they're like, hold up. They, they say, increase our faith. That's too much. I mean, you know, put it differently, they're like, say what? They're, they're, they're not comfortable with this mandate. And you got to realize... This is uh, uh, kind of new information probably for the disciples. They're not, you know, really well versed in this. And so uh, when, he, when he starts talking about the fact that you've got to forgive no matter, you know, basically how many times um, they sin against you, you've got to forgive them, uh, they kind of react like maybe some of us would. But as we know, this is throughout Scripture, and this is not a numerical thing. This is a spiritual attitude. It's not just seven times. Jesus refers in some other passages as 70 times seven, but it's not a numerical thing. You must forgive as many times is as necessary, just as God has forgiven us as many times is as necessary. And that brings us to our first point. To follow Christ, we need to live out forgiveness rather than just talk about it. We need to live out forgiveness rather than just talk about it. You know, forgiveness is one of those things that we know we should do, but we often don't stop and think about all that's involved in actually doing it. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until, of course, they have something to forgive. And, you know, I got to say, I know a thing or two about this topic of forgiveness because I've been married for 18 busy years. Any married people out there? Okay. So do you know what I'm talking about? Subtle laughter. That's all right. I know you don't want to get yourself in trouble. Okay. Well, I've learned a lot about forgiveness from my sweet wife, Katie, and uh, some of you may know her. Now, there's a lot of things that she's forgiven me um, over the years, but in particular, I'm going to pick out that she has, she has regularly had to put up with my inability to continue to take out the garbage. Now, in my defense, I'm going to say this, and for you know, whoever the persons are that take the trash out in the household, you guys may know what I'm talking about, I'm speaking to you, um, I do my best. It's, it's a busy job, and we've got three kids, and I don't know about you guys that take the trash out, but it seems like... It's like, I call it the magic trash can fill. It just constantly keeps filling up. I take that thing out three times a day, 
sometimes more, and it doesn't help. We've got one of those, you know, kind of like European trash cans that, that have the recycling thing and the, like, and, the, and the trash, and we had to get it because my dog will knock over and nudge into the trash. So it like folds, you know, they've got these little doors that you hit with your lever and it folds completely. So there's these just small little areas. I'm always taking them out, constantly feel like I'm always taking out the trash. And my wife has, it's become such a kind of a running gag at our, at our house that she's actually put one of those Hobby Lobby verses up right above the trash cans. And it's Ephesians 4, 2, and it says, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. So isn't that so sweet that she did that? I thought that was just really nice that she did that. So, yes, she forgives me regularly, and then I, in turn, forgive her for forcing me to watch another episode of This Is Us. Now... I like This Is Us. It's a, it's, it, I was into it the first couple seasons, but how many episodes are we going to have of Jack? He, I mean, he passed away like two or three seasons ago, and we're still having him in all of these existing seasons, and we're getting flashbacks of flashbacks of, you know, it's just, yeah. For those of you that know This Is Us, you know what I'm talking about. And I do like Jack, but wow, come on now. All right. So she forgives me. Or I forgive her for, uh, for that. But, you know, I realize those are not exactly, you know, the, the, the most difficult things to forgive, though my wife may beg to differ with you, but we all have situations with individuals in our lives, some small and some really large, uh, that can be very difficult to want to forgive. Maybe it's a parent on an opposing sports team, or maybe it's a coworker um, who just seems to have it out for you and continues to do you wrong. Maybe it's a neighbor you have an ongoing dispute with, a classmate. Or maybe it's a family member who has done something to deeply hurt you. First, I think we need to remember that there is a time to stand up to sin. There's a time for consequences. There's a time for boundaries. But there's also a time to forgive. And it's especially important in many of these big, difficult situations. Because if we don't forgive, they have the potential to do some real, actual damage to our lives. Rick Warren says it well when he says this. I forgive... First, because I've been forgiven by God. Second, unforgiveness makes me miserable. And third, I'm going to need more forgiveness in the future. So we don't forgive for their benefit. We actually forgive for ours. And you may be saying to me, you know, Matt, you don't know my situation. You don't know my circumstances. If you knew it, uh, you'd know that it's impossible for me to forgive this person. And to that, I would say only God gives us the power to forgive. And that's your next fill in there. Only God gives us the power to forgive. I, I actually have a close family member that has recently gone through a very bitter divorce, and for the sake um, of the kiddo, they come in contact with each other several times uh, in a week. And as I've kind of walked them through this, this difficult time in their lives, I've seen just how incredibly hard it can be to forgive. Sometimes um, it's required very frequently. Sometimes it's even more than seven times in a day. And I want to kind of end this section that we're talking about here by showing you an example of incredible forgiveness, the kind that can only come from God. This clip is a recent scene from court of the brother of a man who was tragically shot and killed. He's addressing the shooter in this statement, who at this point, the shooter has repented, but would later be sentenced to prison. So I want you to watch the screen. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And 
I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. Amen. Only God gives us the power to forgive. And particularly after seeing an example like this of forgiveness in the face of devastation, we have to ask ourselves, are you the one that would forgive? Are you the one that is known for forgiveness or are you known for revenge? Well, let's continue to move on here. We're going to go to the next section. We're in Luke 17. So if you've got it, pull it out. Luke 17, 11 through 19. Here we go. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, this is one of those stories that I feel like we may not fully understand uh, because we don't sometimes have a, well, we don't really have a a clue as to what um, it was like to be a leper um, during these times. You know, nowadays we have doctors, we have effective treatments to be able to, to take care of serious diseases like that, to take care of, uh, of, le- of leprosy. But in those days, they only had fear and isolation. Think for a moment what it, have, what it would have been like to be pushed outside the community, to be isolated, to be humiliated, a charity case. Add to that the fact that priests and teachers of the law would commonly use lepers as an object lesson about sin. How would you even find your reason to go on? What would it be like to never be touched? To see little children run away at the side of you? No hugs, no kisses, no handshakes, no pat on the back. These lepers knew the laws and traditions. They knew exactly how far they were required to stand from the public. And there they stand, some distance away, trying to shout over the crowd of people that seemed to surround Jesus whenever he came into a public place. And they called out, they yelled, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Maybe they wanted money or they needed food. It's even possible that they knew that Jesus was a healer and they were reaching out in faith, believing that Jesus would show mercy to them as he had with so many others. In any case, they knew their place. And though they cried for mercy, they did not dare to draw near. Now, Jesus' answer is kind of, it's kind of surprising to us, right? 
He does not ask, you know, if, if they believe. He doesn't actually go over. He doesn't, doesn't lay hands on them. He doesn't, you know, reach down into the mud and make the magic, you know, the mud that he's done before to, to make a healing ointment, so to speak. Instead, he, uh, he says, go show yourselves to the priests. Essentially, what he's telling them to do uh, is what the law required, that when a leper was cleansed, um, that they would have to actually go uh, over to the priests and after an elaborate examination and a, a period of quarantine, they would um, then be declared um, clean. So he's actually uh, telling them to go show yourselves to the priests and act in faith as though they had been healed, even though the healing was not really a reality at that point. And then as they left him, they were miraculously, as we know from reading the story, cleansed of their leprosy. It's interesting that all 10 of these lepers, you know, obeyed Jesus' command to go and show yourselves to the priests. The kind of the skeptical side of me, the cynical side, you know, would have kind of maybe said, you know, um, aren't you going to like, you know, say, say some of the magic words or are you going to, you know, maybe, you know, touch my hand, touch my eyes or are you going to, uh, uh, you know, do something to cure us? You know, but these guys, they didn't, you know, they didn't do that. They didn't argue about the theological implications of healing or, you know, what that meant or, or, or exactly the, the, the entire story. They just obeyed Jesus. And while they were busy obeying, all 10 of them were healed. And you can just imagine this, right? This would be an amazing sight to see. They're kind of, you know, leaning on their crutches, um, beginning to walk towards the priests. Then they begin to kind of, you know, pick up speed as they kind of begin to regain strength. And one of them turns to the other and realizes that, you know, that they've become healed. And it just turns into an all-out sprint to get to the priest. To the priests. And as they're running, one of them stops. One of them, right? One in ten stops short. And he stops and he says, wait a minute. That guy healed me. I'm going to go back and thank him. See, gratitude is an attitude that is formed in good times, but is proven in bad times. Formed in good times and proven in bad times. It needs to be a habit in our lives. See, this one guy leaves the other's on the way and runs back praising God in a loud voice. He actually, you know, it says he throws himself at Jesus' feet and thanks him. Um, and, and then Luke gives us the real kicker, right? He gives this detail that says, and he was a Samaritan. And I'm glad he included that because the others, the Jewish lepers, you know, they, they kind of loved little because they felt maybe that little had been done. Maybe they felt that they were owed, you know, the healing because they were Jews like Jesus. But the Samaritan loved much. He knew exactly what Jesus had done, and he knew how undeserving he was. The problem is all ten had been cured of the same disease, but only one seemed to really recognize the scope of all that had been done. And there's a lot for us to learn here, right, about acting in faith, about, about living out um, the promises of God and, and acting on them. There's also a lot to learn about what real gratitude looks like. You know, here he was limping away in crutches, and he, and he comes and he throws himself at the feet, embracing around the ankles, you know, and with tears of joy streaming down his face saying, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. And the disciples, again, you know, they're kind of looking on and they're, they're probably thinking, you know, does this guy have to get so emotional here? You know, this isn't really like the right thing you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to lay yourself in the dirt here, you know, on the ground. Um, but he doesn't care, right? And he has a moment that he gets to spend at the feet saying thank you to the one and only Son of God. And he's the only one that gets that moment. Without gratitude, we miss out on all that God has in store for us. Without gratitude, we miss out on all that God has in store for us. And what an example the story gives us in the Samaritan. 
And it asks that question again. It says, are you the one? Are you the one that would be like the Samaritan? Are you the one that comes back and that gives thanks? Well, we're on to our third section here, so take out your Bibles. We're going to read Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. And it goes on to read. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given up in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who was on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. So if I was a disciple, (laughs) after he finishes that line, this would be like one of those, if I was there in this situation, I'd be like, Can you go back and say that thing about the vultures again? Because I'm going to need to take some notes on this. This is a little much. I don't understand everything that's going on here. Uh, Where there is a dead body, the vultures will gather. We're going to have to talk about this later, guys. This is some some serious stuff. Um, So, yeah, not exactly sure where that's all going. There's probably a lot of different interpretations on that. But I'm going to focus in on, there's a lot that I could talk about in there. But I'm going to focus in on some of this imagery that we've got here. and it's, it's about this coming kingdom of God. You know, we've got this kind of this picture of people kind of suddenly taken, right, in the middle of their lives. You got this idea of this, uh, you know, in verses 30 through 35, you got the, the woman grinding grain together and one will be taken and the other left. And so as I was preparing for this uh, sermon, uh, I, I read through the whole chapter first and, and I smiled. And I called my, my mom and I said, hey, uh, I'm going to be preaching in a couple weeks, and I'm preaching on Luke 17. And she smiled. She, she said, oh, I, yeah, I know what you're saying. I said, it's, it's interesting, right? You know, the, the, uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, um, the story of the ten lepers. And, and then I said, and then, you know, it talks about the coming kingdom of God, and it's got the story of the women grinding grain. And, you know, you guys are probably like, what in the world? Why would that be something, you know, that you would have in common? Well, we, we, what we knew was that, that there is an album cover that my parents worked on on a Christian uh, band that they were in in the late 70s that had this very picture illustrated. So I want you to look on the screen here. This, now you got to have some grace. This was the ni- late 1970s, guys, okay? So this was uh, the album cover for my, my parents' 
Christian band. Yes, I come from a long line of uh, Christian musicians. And they put together an album, an LP, for those of you that have no idea what that is. You know, this is a great big thing. It's not a CD cover. This is a great big, you know, full uh, uh, LP here, an album, record. And, uh, and so they were in a band called Psalm. And they wrote a bunch of original songs together. Uh, they, per- they, they performed those together, and they uh, played a lot um, at our church growing up. I remember being at rehearsals. And so it's describing this scene right here. And go, to the, go ahead, Ian, you can go to the next slide. This is the back of the album cover, right? And you can see it describes what we were just talking about. This lady's got a very disconcerted look on her face right there, which obviously, I mean, if somebody just disappears while you're sitting there turning the stone together, that would be disconcerting. But it was, it was interesting to me. And by the way, uh, so my dad is the guy at the top right, uh, and then my mom's there. Um, she's the keyboardist, and uh, my dad played banjo, bass, and he sang. So, uh, so they were very involved. But, you know, I, I showed this to you because I was having the conversation with my, uh, with my mom, and I said, so what was it? What, why, did you, why did you choose this? You know, she's like, oh, well, you know, there's some different things. There's probably some different things. Why? But the biggest reason was um, we, we really just sat there and we said, you know what? There's just so much going on in the world right now. And, of course, you know, we have that now too. But she said, you know, we want to we live our lives with a sense of urgency. We want to live our lives knowing that he's coming soon and that we need to live for what's important. And so um, they actually had written that song called He's Coming, and so they made that the, the title uh, track of, of the album. And um, I don't know. I thought that was pretty cool. And by the way, did you see the beards on those guys? I mean, that was just awesome. The lead singer had a beard down to here, which was, which was awesome. I got, I got to start working on that. I get, no. Um, it all comes back around, right? It all comes back around. Beards are back in style. All right. So the, the point is, um, what we're getting from this passage is, is that we've got to decide to live with a sense of urgency. And not to decide is to decide how to live. That's your next fill-in. Not to decide is to decide how to live. One day in the 1920s, I'll tell you a quick story here. One day in the 1920s, Charles Schwab President of Bethlehem Steel at the time, 1920s. Now you probably know Charles Schwab because he, uh, from the uh, company, uh, the brokerage firm that bears his name. This was this was the guy here. Uh, President of Bethlehem Steel met Ivy Lee, a pioneer management consultant. Schwab said, "Show me a way to get more things done with my time, and I'll pay you anything within reason." Lee handed Schwab a blank piece of paper and told him to take a few minutes that evening and write down an order of importance. Six tasks he needed to do the next day. The next day, work on the first priority until it's completed, then move on to the second item, and so forth. At the end of the day, tear up the list and make a new one for the next day. Don't be concerned, said Lee, if you finish only one task or two tasks. The main objective is not to do everything on the list, but to spend your time on the most important. In other words, do first things first. Try this for a while, and if it works, send me what you think the advice was worth. And that's how Lee left the conversation. A few weeks later, Charles Schwab mailed Lee a check for $25,000, equivalent to $250,000 in today's um, estimations, with a note that just simply said this, this was the best advice I have ever received. See, we're not talking about, you know, living frantically. We're always responding to every emergency. What we're talking about is living for what's important. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, 15 through 16, it says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. In reading this last week on the topic, I also came across um, a statistic that I found almost hard to believe. And it said this. It said, those of us living in today, in 2020, have more free time than any generation before ours. And study after study confirms this. Those of us living, just listen to that, in 2020 have more free time than any generation ever before ours. And the thing is, we we probably don't agree with that, right? We think we never have enough time, that things are always getting busier. And the truth is, we're technology-rich And we're time poor, aren't we? With all the advances of the last several decades, we've saved enormous amounts of time. You know, our housework is faster. uh, Communication's almost instant. Information's at our fingertips for almost everything. But with this technology comes the belief that we can do more and do it faster and that we should do more. Just look at the distractions we have with tech alone, right? You've got text messages, social media, uh, you know, notifications, emails, uh, games, digital ads of the guitar that you were looking at last week that you didn't buy, and then now miraculously it shows up in your news feed again. It's like, it's in my Instagram feed. What, how, what, what are you guys doing? How do you know this stuff? They know, don't they? They know very well. You looked at it, you know, for a second, and they're like, and now it's on sale, 10% off. Like, now you really need to buy this. Yeah. Um, it's always in the news feed. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, there's all kinds of random things that show up in that, that news feed. The point is that, you know, we're obviously using these technologies, and we're using them quite a bit. But how can we be wise with these technologies? And if we're going to use them a lot, are we using them for the purposes that God has created us to actually be here? What's our purpose, right? We talk about this a lot, that we would love God, that we would love others that we would ultimately bring glory to God. And so, you know, just like it says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And God's put us on this earth to glorify him. And we do that by loving him with all our hearts, talking to him, serving him. And we can only do that by trusting in Jesus Christ as our personal savior and doing that regularly on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis by trusting what he wants for our lives. When we come to the end of our short lives and face eternity, the important thing will be what we've accomplished for the Lord and his kingdom through his power working in and through us. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. Our lives are short, and the Bible's pretty clear about this. Listen to what the Bible compares our lives to. In James 4, it says, For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Or in Psalms, it's like grass that withers and dies away. And here we have a a world that's constantly telling us to tone it down. Tone it down. Talk about Jesus in private. Keep it to yourselves. Romans 10, it seems to say say otherwise. It says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. This passage in Luke 17 is pretty clear. 
We're called to live life with the same kind of urgency that Noah had in his time. And it asks us the questions. Are you the one that will forgive? Are you the one that will go back and give thanks? Are you the one that will live for distractions and whatever comes next rather than what's important? Are you the one that will live for things that will truly last? Are you the one that will share the truth of Jesus Christ with a world that so desperately needs it? Would you guys uh, bow your heads and pray with me and let's close together just so you're concentrating on your own lives and just spending some time just thinking and being reflective. It's hard to do in this world sometimes. Things are always keeping us busy, it seems. Let's just take some time to focus. You know, are you the one today? I know we're here in a crowd this size. Maybe you're the one that needs to finally accept the fact that you are forgiven. And it's because Christ died on a cross that you are forgiven. And you need to accept that forgiveness. We can only forgive because we've been forgiven first. And so maybe you need to take that step. Maybe you're the one that needs to to pray this prayer with me and I would so encourage you to do it. It's the best thing that you'll ever do with your life. It gives you purpose, hope. It is the reason that we're here. Pray after me. Say, God, I've made a mess doing things on my own. I ask for forgiveness for the things that, that I've done wrong. I know I'm a sinner, but I know that it's because your son came, died on a cross and was risen on the third day, God, that, that I can have eternity with you. And so I trust you. I give my life to you today. I thank you for the blood that was shed. Just like it talks about in scripture, there has to be blood that's shed in order for me to be saved. And so I put my full faith and trust in you today. If you prayed that prayer, um, we want to be able to pray with you. Please just slip up your hand. You can just do it discreetly so I can see, but let us know. We want to be able to be in touch with you and talk to you today. And for the, rest of, uh, for the rest of you, maybe you're the one that as we were talking about forgiveness, you just thought immediately somebody, the Holy Spirit brought to mind somebody that you can't forgive. You have been holding back. And maybe first thing you need to do in your heart is to say, God, I got to let go of this. I want to forgive this person. And then you, you got to make steps today to finally let that go, to forgive. And then you may need to make steps to go and, and reconcile, to go and, and say that verbally. That's a powerful step. Maybe you're the one, though, that, that you know what, you, something happened in your life over the last couple months, and, you know, you were, you were about to pray about it, but you, then all of a sudden God just, you, you, all of a sudden it, it happened in your life, and you thought, you know what, God, I'm not even going to need to lift that up. I've got it taken care of. It's taken care of. And that was God. Amen. That was the Lord. And so give him thanks for that. I guarantee you, the fact that we're sitting in here today and we're present, we've got a lot to be thankful for. So show gratitude. Let's do that. And um, and lastly, maybe you're the one that, that needs to commit or recommit today to living for what's important. And that, you know, you, you realize, you know, the distractions have been kind of dominating and I want to live for what's important. I want to make a statement and a stand today, right here, right now, God, that I'm going to live for what's important. Only what's done for Christ will last, and I want the things I do to last.
And so you recommit that. Pray with me. God, we, we want to be people that forgive. May we forgive easily. Continue to soften our hearts, Lord. We ask that you would. Thank you for this, this, uh, this scripture and for this passage. We want to be grateful too. God, thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. Thank you for our families, our communities, our pastors. Thank you for Pastor Dave and the leadership here. Thank you, God, for uh, uh, this country, for, uh, for the gifts that we, that we have, the blessings that we have. Thank you for our, our schools and our communities, our friends, families. God, we want to to live for what's important, so maybe we just make that a declaration in our lives today. We love you, Lord. We want to live out this week for the things of your kingdom. We know, um, God, that our lives are short, and so we want to live them for you. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.